0: Welcome back to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that have triggered global consequences. My co-host, the former chief of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove, and I look at some of the decisions made by leaders and influencers, why they made the choices they did, what comes next, and what does their decision mean for all of us. This week, more news of international firms pulling out of Russia due to Putin's ongoing war against Ukraine. In many cases, companies initially hesitant to leave are now doing just that. Mercedes-Benz, one of the biggest businesses in Russia, is now packing up, and it's got more than $2 billion worth of assets still in the country, that matters because recently the Kremlin announced hostile measures against companies who were boycotting the country, warning that it reserved the right to expropriate their assets left behind. Troubling times now for Koch Industries, one of the biggest private firms in America. Having faced weeks of public pressure and disapproval for continuing to do business in Russia, they finally announced intentions to exit the country. Having previously said they wanted to avoid their factories falling into the hands of the Russian government, who would eventually profit from them, it appears now that that's exactly what Koch Industries is facing as it prepares to close its manufacturing plants. We reached out to 14 global firms involved in this development. All have released brief statements to the press announcing they've decided to pull out of Russia, but none were prepared to join us on the podcast to talk about why and what comes next. Our resident expert, Sir Richard Dearlove, sits on the boards of global businesses, and in his past life as Chief of British Intelligence, he dealt many a time with a difficult Russian government. But the latest moves by the Kremlin from the Ukraine invasion to further lashing out against the international community has taken even him by surprise. Right. So, Richard, we've got lots to talk about today and particularly uh, about the situation in Russia with businesses. Um, So let's signpost where we are at the moment. Russia has been under crippling U.S. and Western sanctions for nearly three months. They were implemented just two days after Putin sent troops over the border into Ukraine. Uh, Back in late February on the 24th, by the 26th, there were already uh, sanctions on Putin and Sergei Lavrov. The EU announced this week that they would ban Russian oil imports by the end of the year. The UK is barring Russian banks from the British financial system. That goes on top, of course, of the disconnecting of Russian banks from the SWIFT payment system. All of this is having a cataclysmic effect on the Russian economy. But what is particularly interesting that we're going to look at today is that around all this state-sanctioned action... There is movement in the corporate world as well. And with this invasion, Russia has really turned itself into a pariah state that absolutely nobody seems to want to be seen to be doing business with, which is quite a feat, really, Uh, when you have a lot of international firms still doing uh, business in places like Saudi Arabia and China. It seems like the invasion was one step too far. and so we're seeing companies taking actions of their own we have the US car maker Ford temporarily shutting down its factories in Russia BP the British energy company promising to exit the com- the country that of course has uh, that company has very deep ties with Rosneft the Russian state oil company So Richard, I wanted to ask, first of all, what is it about this invasion that was one step too far for the international community? I mean, there's conflict all over the world. There's atrocious human rights violations committed by regimes that we continue to call our friends and allies. So why is Putin's invasion of Ukraine too much for us to stomach? You know, we didn't see this uh, in Georgia. We didn't see this with Crimea.
1: Well, I think probably it's an issue of scale, Rather than an issue of principle, because you're right to bring up, you know, many other smaller examples. But you know, when you carry out an unprovoked military invasion of a neighbouring country with whom you have had the closest historical connections, you know, with an army of one hundred and thirty thousand backed by even more military hardware and power. And of course, your the country concerned is a way is in historically in a way a hinge between Eastern and Western Europe. Um, I think it's a it's it's a question of, of the seriousness and scale, and the the sort of shock at the unprovoked aggression. I mean, all that Ukraine really was doing was moving its political. System towards a more Western parliamentary democracy. Um, not that it had maybe traveled the whole distance. I mean, there were still massive internal problems in Ukrainian politics. But I, I think, you know, w- w- the world suddenly realized that to have a fully developed European democracy sitting in what traditionally many Russians would consider half of Russia was just. Too much ideologically and conceptually for the current Russian leadership, which, let's face it, is a pretty bizarre and violent bunch of people, as they've proved themselves to be. So, I, I think it, it, it's it's about the geopolitics where it happened. It's about the scale. Um, it's about you know the lack of provocation and. I think it's the sort of shock to the geopolitical system that Russia could actually act like this. Um, I, I I don't think I can offer a better explanation than that. And of course, as we've just been discussing, in Russia has this historical track record. And I mean, if we just take the recent 20th century, you've got Hungary in 56, you've got Czechoslovakia in 68. Um, you've got their interference in Poland when Poland went more democratic um you've got Georgia <laughs> you know you've got all all of these examples piling up and, and and this probably the the last one is the very worst of all so I think that explains it for me anyway
0: right and you know the the next question I was going to ask you was is it More about Putin, or is it about Russia? And you know, you give this long example of, you know, similar, uh, you know, similar acts of aggression by Russia against its neighbors, against nearby countries. You were based in Prague. You were dealing with hostile Russia many years ago. You're still dealing with a hostile Russia now. I mean, do are we always going to be locked in conflict? with Russia is it ever going to be a country that will be able to interact with the international community on a non-hostile basis
1: a very very good question and uh, i think you know the historical evidence suggests that it isn't just putin although you know the leadership must take some responsibility it looks like a characteristic of the russian state and i'm not talking about the soviet union i'm talking about the russian state historically and as you know sometimes you get a uh, a good leader like peter the great or you get an ivan the terrible and uh, i mean or you get a catherine the great or, or you get you know nicholas the second um i mean interestingly i've just been in the czech republic and um I was talking to people there who I know very well who take a huge interest in geopolitics in their governmental community and they were basically saying or predicting that this that we're near the end of another period in Russian history um like the end of the reign of the tsars um before the Russian revolution and you know we've had Putin for the best part of 20 years and this regime is going to end in some manner that we do not know and it will be violent and it will be disruptive and it will be hugely disruptive as it's proving to be already for Europe and I think that's a very interesting perspective you know given the experience that the Czechs themselves went through post 68 and I was there uh, living there in that period which was sort of Called by the Russians and the Czech communist leadership at the time, normalization. I mean, that was the phrase that they used, normalizace in Czech, um, you know, to describe their reassertion of power over the country after you know the events of 1968. And um, in a way, I think it's fascinating. Normalization for for the Czech Republic. Well, it was Czechoslovakia then, and of course, denazification now for Ukraine. And you know, you have to say, "Well, hang on." The, the, there's a theme. There's a commonality here between these concepts.
0: It struck me as you were listing. You know, Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible. I wonder if we should start calling him perhaps not Vlad the Impaler, but Vlad the Invader, uh, to refer
1: well, to people. I think that's very. You know, that that's a clever phrase, and that you know, it characteristic of his regime, and of course. What's happening in the last few days is, you know, it looks as though they're facing a military failure. Um, The the, 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 the Ukrainians apparently, you know, around Kharkiv, got back to the Russian border and have driven them away from that other principal city. Um, And what's going to happen now down in the Donbass? The trouble is the worse it goes for Russia, the more potentially... Violent, I think the Russians become to try to recover some of their, well, some of their national pride.
0: But it's also, but besides the the latest developments on the field, there is also an important economic dimension to this conflict. And I want to talk to you about uh, this uh, this bill that was uh, issued in uh, back in March. The Kremlin issued Decree Two Nine Nine. And that will now allow firms, which are more than 25% held by foreigners from, quote, hostile states, guess who belongs to that club, um, to be put into external administration. So what's going to happen, according to this bill, is that administrators will be appointed by Russian courts for companies that have announced that they are leaving Russia because of the war in Ukraine. And after three months, the companies would either be liquidated or their shares put up for auction. Now, the companies uh, that this could affect include dozens of really well-known firms, uh, a lot of car companies um, that have announced that they are quitting Russia. You've got Apple, you've got Ikea, uh, Microsoft, IBM, Shell, and then these car companies like Volkswagen, Porsche, Toyota, and others. One of the biggest, Mercedes-Benz. I think they stand to lose potentially more than $2 billion of assets held by their Russian subsidiaries that could be expropriated by the Russian state. Uh, Richard... I guess the Russians are at liberty to do what they want with assets on their land. I mean, you make your own rules when you are a sovereign country such as Russia, but this seems to me like it's theft, right? I mean, it's not precisely a license to steal, um, but this decree 299, from what I have read, it forces... Uh, companies to grant compulsory license to Russian companies or individuals in exchange for 0% compensation. I mean, that is essentially stealing, is it not?
1: Well, I suppose the question is, you know, can can the state the nation state steal? Um, I mean, of course, it can in terms of the way that we, you know, conceive of the concept. But, you know, it's it's using lawfare instead of warfare, as it were. So it's using the law to legitimize its activities. And uh, I mean, I don't think any of this is particularly surprising, given where we've got to. I mean, if you wish, this is the Russian response to sanctions. Um, But the cost for Russia to do this internationally, in terms of its reputation, is it, it, probably higher than the benefits that they will gain. I mean, it's going to take Russia years to recover its reputation as a reliable trading or business partner. Um, and you know, many of us who are not businessmen have been warning uh, businesses that you know heavy investment in Russia is susceptible to. In a political intervention, political disruption, and I think the Russians have, you know, reached a point where they just don't. Well, they're not willing. I wouldn't say they don't care. I mean, there'll be a lot of individual Russians who are going to lose out badly um, because they've benefited enormously from their relationship with Western companies and Western investment in, in the Russian economy. Uh, I mean, there are all sorts of dimensions to this. I'm one of the ones I'm familiar with. There are all these planes. Which were in Russia, mm. you know, which belong, yes, uh, which were leased to airlines, belong to Irish, largely mm. Irish leasing companies. You know, the Russians have just come and, dead and confiscated these aircraft, um, and the question is, you know, what's going to happen? Who's going to pay the insurance claims? And the other thing is, you know, if these planes are not flown, and if they don't follow uh, IATA regulations. Um, and they don't have proper logbooks. There becomes a sort of huge safety factor, and you can't then use them. Even if the planes would be returned to the West, they'll have to be pretty much rebuilt. Um, so the, 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 there's huge complexity, and the people who are going to benefit from these measures largely are going to be the lawyers. I mean, the international, <laughs> the courts are going to be stuffed with court cases on all of these issues cashing um, in, yeah. well maybe you know there's maybe that there will be a re- regime change in russia um i wouldn't say quickly mm-hmm. and maybe you know in a in a period of time some of these things would be revert, reversed but even if they are reversed they're going to be compensation claims for the period of interruption so it, it's, it's hugely complicated. It,
0: it, it is. And I mean, we were talking a week ago to Clarissa Ward, who said uh, that she has given up trying to predict the decisions of Vladimir Putin and trying to understand some of the recent thinking uh, coming out of the Kremlin. But I have to ask, like, why is the Kremlin doing this this is essentially them burning down the house because if you are going to expropriate billions of dollars worth of factories of plants of of property that belongs to foreign companies who have been hiring russian nationals who have been doing business in russia who have been you know enriching the russian economy by virtue of doing business if you're going to suddenly expropriate a lot of a lot of this you are essentially making it impossible for anyone once this conflict is over and pr- pretty much every every conflict comes to an end eventually. Palestinians will pro- and Israelis will probably claim otherwise. But, I mean, there will be an end to this conflict at some point. And then who is going to want to do business with the Russians, uh, given that this is what they are now starting to do?
1: Well, bear in mind, you know, we're living in a period of... Um- let's say, ESG-related issues as far as Western capitalism is concerned in big companies. And they have to be pretty protective of their rep- reputations. Um, they have to you know, behave responsibly because of their shareholders on environmental, social and governance issues. So for many of these companies, I think that the current political situation really doesn't Almost allow them to continue business in Russia, because they'll be condemned for, um, you know, being supporters of the Russia, I, mean, I mean, implicitly supporters of the Russian state or the Russian economy. So I, I don't think they've got a lot of choice. They're going to have to close down. And of course, if they then close down, the Russians are going to respond and confiscate their assets.
0: Right, but I mean the, the the thinking behind the Kremlin doing this. I mean, a lot of these companies pulling out of Russia, they're ceasing operations. You say that a lot of this uh, is fight back from from these sanctions, but is the seizing of you know dozens of plants and factories is that going to is is it enough to make up for the sanctions? If they then I don't know flog these factories to the Chinese, why would they? Why would they not leave these factories empty? And and give these companies, you know, a route back into Russia when things when things return to normality, if they ever do.
1: Well, good question, but you know, I think that the Russian leadership—I mean, this isn't the Russian people; this is the Russian leadership—feel that their best response, you know, is almost a vindictive response. And I, I think the other thing that one has to bear in mind which came out very clearly when I was talking to people in Prague. One of them who has extensive uh, experience of working with with big Russian businesses said that fundamental to Russia's problems at the moment, and I think this is probably reflected in the performance of, of the military, is the level of corruption. And he said, if you take any big Russian contracts... Uh, and he 's re- he 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 's familiar with um Russ atom the um nuclear um, power part of you know uh, the Russian state the building of nuclear power stations he said the amount of money that goes astray in contracts and into people 's profits and then to banks in Cyprus and Malta and elsewhere he said it 's absolutely stunning you know we have a regime which has a reputation um for kleptocracy anyway and in terms of the confiscation of these assets maybe a lot of the benefits to the i talk about the immediate financial benefits go into the into the profit into the pockets of individuals certainly they're not going to be able to operate efficiently Uh, They'll be able to operate some of them, but some of these factories are just going to close down and, you know, the stuff will be sold off and that'll be the end of it. And, you know, the Russian economy will go further backwards. But I, I think the other thing to bear in mind, maybe this is a dangerous comment for me to make. The Russian economy has never been integrated into the world trade system to the extent that the Chinese economy is integrated into the world trade system. And, you know, we're talking about Russian sanctions. Um, or sanctions on Russia, and they are tough, and the population is going to suffer over time. But the Russian economy is commodity dominated, and its dependence on selling energy is huge. So, despite all these other measures, and you know, the the, the money is still pouring in from the sale of gas and oil until those markets are closed down. And, you know, we now have a much clearer idea of the difficulties of countries like Germany. Uh, and I mean, okay, I'm going to quote the Czech Republic again. 60% of their gas supply um, is, is, is Russian-dependent. The
0: EU are working on this. They announced that they will end Russian oil imports by the end of this year. So they are working on... Well, if
1: they do, that'll be great. And it'll be a big step, an important step. And that really will, I think, be um, damaging to the Russian economy more so than sanctions, um, because that will start cutting... Uh, hugely you know the royalties the income that they're getting from selling energy which which is the most um, important part of their economic uh, survival.
0: So so I just want to pick up on something because you say that you know cutting Russia off from its revenue from its trade with the international community is a way to properly to, to properly punish it for what it's done in Ukraine but Earlier, you said that, you know, if we had integrated Russia more into world trade, such as how we have done with China, perhaps this whole thing could have been avoided in the first place. And I want to ask you um, about something uh, hot on the heels of McDonald's announcing that they are finally quitting Russia after 30 years uh, in Russia. Um, I want to ask you about this so-called McDonald's peace theory, which is this idea that economic globalization makes war less likely. And uh, it was originally something coined, I believe, by Thomas Friedman, who proposed that no two countries that have a McDonald's have ever fought a war against each other. Now, it's it's pithy, but, but problematic. I mean, you have obviously places like Lebanon, Belgrade, Georgia and Ukraine. They all have d- McDonald's in them. But I think essentially what he's saying is, you know, globalization has long been a strong deterrent against conflict. Um, but then, of course, you do have this worrying example from history, which is all that burgeoning trade that was going on before the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated 100 years ago. So, Richard, I, w- I want to ask, you know, given that McDonald's itself is, is is now announced that it's packing and leaving, is that now symbolic uh, more of Russia's isolation perhaps than other Than other companies, and and what do you make of this idea that in order to, uh, you know, maintain peace, we have to be completely integrated with each other in the international community through trade?
1: Well, it's an it's an attractive theory, and it probably has an element of truth. I mean, in in terms of human experience, Um, and. You know, we have lived through these periods of globalisation, and you're right, you know, the 19th century, the latter part of the 19th century was one, and we've just lived through another. I mean, I think what I would argue it is that the banking crisis of 2008 really had a profound effect on globalisation um, and made us look at the interrelationship between our economies in a different fashion, because you know what happened was that the banking system was actually rescued by an extraordinary degree of governmental cooperation. It wasn't actually rescued by the bankers themselves um, and the United States uh, given its sort of global. Uh, economic reach played a really important part. But the irony was that I would argue that to an extent, the quants, you know, the, the money men who had this view were put out of business, uh, I, you know, by, by this geopolitical crisis. And governments came back with a vengeance. Um, and, you know, the banking system would have collapsed. I mean, there's a very brilliant book by Adam Tooze that that explains this. And I think that what we have seen since um, is a reassertion of the identity of the nation state uh, and and not in an entirely positive way. Um, and, and, And that reassertion of the nation state has been prejudicial in some instances. To the nature and the organisation of international trade, as expressed through organisations. Well, was GATT the General Agreement on Tariffs um, and Trade, and then, then replaced by WTO. Um, and it's not. It's not now working. It's still working, but it's not working so well. So, I and I think these these issues are pretty complex and, and, and difficult to decipher uh, in the current crisis. But uh, I I think we're edging towards an understanding of what's happening. And, and there's no question that, you know, there is a breakdown in coordination and trade. And, you know, look at the problems that the EU is now facing. Um, and I would see, you know, Brexit as part of, um, that development where you have a, a trade organization, which in my view had become, you know, autocratic and not sufficiently accountable in the way that it was making its decisions. And, and I mean, the best example of this is the way that Europe um, allowed its um, you know, dependence on Russian energy to grow almost unchecked without realising or without um, evaluating the degree of political risk that it was exposing itself to.
0: I want to segue just given what you're saying about economic cooperation and how it's, it's not, it's not the, you know, it is not an, a universal solution, but I do want to ask you about China because China joined the WTO uh, uh However many years ago, I can't remember when it joined. China. China joined the WTO, and while we have a difficult relationship with China, um, hey, we haven't broken out into war just yet. And I and and partly it's because China has a lot of vested interests in engaging with the West. And I want to ask because you know we're talking about. Um, the possibility of the Russians expropriating a lot of these foreign assets that are being left in the country uh, in the wake of a lot of these Western companies uh, packing up and leaving over the war in Ukraine. Um, and there's a question as to whether the Chinese will will, will benefit uh, from the fire sale of this and, and and whether China and Russia will be pushed closer together. But what's interesting is that China is sort of holding back. I mean, when we're not seeing <clears throat> the Chinese, uh, you know, rescuing. Russia. They've been making some pretty savvy decisions lately. They, you know, they've they've been snapping up bargain coal from Russia since Russia can hardly sell to the West anymore, and the Chinese have a huge demand for it. Uh, I, th- I believe that coal makes up half of China's energy consumption, and so, you know, they are profiting from the situation with Ukraine. But I don't personally buy this idea that the Chinese are going to be propping up the Russians and that they're the best of friends. And you know analysts who are presenting this two-headed hostile threat to the West, because the reality is, I think, that they are really quite uneasy bedfellows. And the Chinese, I don't think, are as wedded to the Russians as a lot of people fear. The Chinese, they haven't condemned the invasion of Ukraine, sure, but they have done things, I think, that speak louder than words. I'm I mean, their banks—they've restricted financing for the purchases of Russian commodities because they're concerned about falling into the wrong side of sanctions. Uh, very recently, a large investment bank, actually, which was backed, which is backed by Beijing, announced that they were suspending all activity in Russia. Um, because of the war in Ukraine. And then, of course, there was that really interesting press conference that we discussed um, after Xi and Putin's meeting during the Winter Games, where the foreign ministry corrected a lot of press statements after their meetings and and said that China and Russia were partners, not allies. It was that whole sex, not love uh, statement um, that puzzled us earlier in the year. And, you know, China's trade with Russia is just 2% of all of their trade With with the world. And that's nothing compared to its trade with the EU and the US, uh, both of which is is more than 10% each. And you know, China has its own domestic worries to deal with. It's got its COVID-0 policy, which is really stymieing demand and production. All these factories are having to shut down because people are getting COVID. And then we've got, of course, the property market woes it's dealing with all of these sort of factors, which I think. I think means that we're not going to see Russia being able to survive these sanctions because the Chinese are going to come in and sweep in and, and, and rescue them. I mean, what's your take on all of this?
1: I think that the Chinese will be very cautious in the way that they try to, as it were, leverage the current situation to their advantage. So they're not going to jump into Russia's arms Uh, but they're not going to be particularly hostile either I mean you made this very good point that you know Chinese trade with Russia is two percent of um, Chinese foreign trade I mean the other thing we have to remember when we're talking about Russia in this context is you know it's what is it 13th 14th in the list of world GDP I mean it's way way down the table and you know it's a sort of around the round where italy is i mean maybe just ahead of italy and but certainly if you take away energy i mean god knows it drops even further down um russia is not except in one respect as a supplier to energy to europe which of course is geopolitical and strategic but in the rest of its economy is not a big deal um, and the closure of these factories and everything most of the companies that you're talking about can afford to do without the Russian market. I mean globalization allowed them to expand into this untapped market in Russia and it was very beneficial for them but pulling out now is not going to be a disaster I must be a disaster for the Russian people so I think that that's one aspect to it The other issue as regards China is you know our economies and I'm talking about Europe, including the UK and the United States, are, are entangled with the Chinese economy. So the whole issue of dealing with a badly behaved China will be much, much more challenging and much more difficult than behaving with you know, a rogue Russia. So looking ahead, the Chinese understand this, and you know, the the, the two sides to the coin. I think That this current crisis is going to make the Chinese much, much more cautious, and I mean, I think we've discussed this before. You know, there is a a pretty strong view amongst scholars of China that in a period um, before the Ukrainian, the invasion of Ukraine, Xi Jinping to an extent was overplaying his hand in emphasising Russian um, Chinese power and you know Chinese expansion, and. I think, well, you've now got the problem of COVID, you know, holding back the Chinese economy. But I think also strategically, China is treading much, much more carefully again, um, which would be, you know, characteristic of the way that it has treated its international relations. And, and, you know, it doesn't want to alarm. It did alarm the Trump administration. And I think you see... um, evidence of it treading again more carefully and this will certainly apply to how it deals with Russia and the I I mean okay they they will be pushed together to an extent by circumstance is China going to be Russia's lifeboat I think not
0: yeah I, I completely agree I just want to lastly ask you um about I want to revisit with you because we've 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 looked at this a few times as this conflict has has progressed and I just want to Uh, take us back to the view inside Russia. And I wanted to ask, are we starting to see public opinion perhaps beginning to splinter on the wisdom of Putin's decision to invade? Um, There has been uh, a a segment on one of the biggest state talk shows in Russia uh, discussing how the invasion was going with a retired colonel who gave us some pretty remarkable comments uh, to the host, noting that quote, the whole world is against us and it is going to get worse for us. Uh, He talked about the high morale of the Ukrainian army, that they were motivated to defend their homeland and how that in itself is an extremely strong component of battleground victories. Um, He said that conscript armies could stand up to professional armies given motivation and willpower in play, which he seemed to be admitting that the Ukrainians have in droves what did you make of that uh, of that particular segment
1: yeah i watched it um it's extraordinary i would say what we're dealing with here i mean you, you said public opinion i don't think public opinion is really shifting yet in russia but i think expert opinion may be beginning to shift and uh, that was the main talk show on uh, the main channel and I don't think things like that happen entirely by accident in Russia. Uh, it may, as it were, indicate a, you know, a change of thinking, a change of attitude. I was rather struck this morning when I also read in my, one of my newspapers online that Putin had said as long as NATO didn't open military bases in, uh, in Sweden and Finland, then joining NATO was not going to be a problem for Russia um and he actually made that statement yesterday which let's face it was pretty sub- i mean he, what he's saying is he, he he's almost accepting it as a fait accompli and as long as NATO doesn't stick forward bases into those countries. Which-
0: I mean that's kind of a come down he was talking about pointing nuclear warheads in the direction of Finland just a week ago. Oh, so. I
1: know, you know, we we're, we're going to have all that <laughs> sort of nuclear talk. Um I I think that there might be the signs of a shift i don't know and um, and there's some very strange shots of putin um they just had this meeting yesterday or the day before of their six military allied countries i mean i, I i'm not sure but it, yeah. it's probably kazakhstan uzbekistan
0: was he talking with the, the leader of tajikistan or something and he was tapping his leg yeah. his yeah. legs were and, all of, and a lot of people all hmm, of that's pretty of odd and
1: um, i, I uh, I don't know. Maybe, I, 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 I think that what my Czech friends said to me is that we're reaching the end of this regime in Russia. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to disappear. You know, what I'm saying is over the next year, 18 months, maybe in, you know, something is going to break apart. I mean, there's no question that this Ukrainian venture is a catastrophe. Um, And you wouldn't get a commentator on a main show saying what he said unless, you know, the sort of Russian elite have thoroughly understood just what a mess they are in. And, you know, the economy is in a mess. They're going to, the sanctions are really going to start biting over the next three to six months. They do take time. And, 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 And there will be very high inflation as well. And then over and above that, Militarily, it's a complete fiasco, um, and at the moment, I I think that it, it 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 it's worrying because the fragility of all of these elements will will cause something to break apart and go wrong. So, I I think you're very it's very um, accurate to focus on this interview significantly. I don't think it would have happened unless. There's somewhere in the machine. There's a change of mood, and it was interesting to watch the way the presenter was sort of rather weakly arguing and contesting what this guy was saying, but with, with, without much impact on his analysis, which got actually.
0: And she, it's interesting because she said twice, "Do you think there's any chance we could stay friends?" In yes, London? I saw. That too. Which I thought yeah, was interesting. So you
1: know, maybe. Well, I, I mean look at all these
0: Does she have a house I mean, look in Kensington, at all these oligarchs who
1: got <laughs> driven out of London. I mean yeah. the number of kids that they've got mm. in English private education system. Uh, I think many of them are still here because the you know, the, the people didn't want to discriminate against the children. But, you know, who's paying the fees? How are they going to get the money out? Um, I mean,
0: Sergey Lavrov's daughter, I believe, has a house, has a townhouse in Kensington. And, yeah, she does. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know. And I I, I mean, the other thing that my um, friends in Prague told me, and, you know, half, half Russian, that a lot of the kids, and I, I mean, grown-up children, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, They've all left. They've gone to Istanbul, Ankara, Georgia, Helsinki. They're all sitting there because they do not want to be called up if there's a general mobilization. And and the parents that can afford to keep them out of Russia are saying, you know, no, you can't come back yet because, you know, we've still got a problem. And uh, the significant number of them are outside the country.
0: Okay, so I'm going to end this by asking you to make a prediction. How much longer is Putin going to remain in power?
1: I think he'll – I'm really going to stick my neck out. I think he'll be gone by 2023. Really? probably, Probably into a sanatorium from which he will not emerge as the leader of Russia. I'm not saying he won't emerge from the sanatorium, but he won't emerge from the sanatorium as the leader of Russia any longer.
0: I think you're right about the sanatorium, especially if it turns out he does have Parkinson's or whatever. Yeah, it is and that's like a an,
1: uh, that's a way to sort of move things on without a coup.
0: Hmm. Um, I'm going to say eighteen months.
1: Okay. Well, I, I think that, that those two predictions are within within a reasonable framework. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think before the next U.S. Yeah, election,
1: yeah, but my Czech friend said to me, "Don't make any predictions on timing. It's exactly. going to happen, but we do not
0: know." <laughs> <laughs> well, the nice. Well, I like I like making predictions. If you can get over make getting it wrong from time to time, I think what's good about predictions is you can revisit yeah. your assessment well, when things come. Maybe to maybe we'll or
1: get, you don't. we'll get a chance to revisit this.
0: Exactly. <laughs> great richard great to talk to you again julia
1: wonderful i really enjoyed it okay
0: me too don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode of one decision we'll have a new one for you every thursday from me and the team see you next time